Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks to Zach and team for leading us in worship and song. Now let's worship in the word, shall we? If I were to ask you this morning, are you in a season of or time transition? I think we'd be amazed that probably every hand would go up in this room. Certainly we're in a time of transition post-COVID. Our culture is in a time of great transition. I think about the transitions through the last season of our history when we've gone from an agricultural economy and society to an industrial one. And then we move from an industrial largely to digital. And now some are saying that we're moving from digital towards mobile and artificial intelligence. So there's some macro ways that we're living in a season of transition, as well as personal ways. And as I reflected on that these last few weeks, there's two things that are apparent to me, and they're the first fill-in-the-blank notes of your handout, and they'll frame our conversation today. Here's the first insight. Times of transition always mean change. Always mean change. By definition, some change will be involved in a time of transition, whether personally or at the macro level. So I want to do a couple of polls this morning. I want to ask you first, how many of you in here today say, I love change, bring it on, I can't wait to see what the results will be. Can I see your hands if you like change? Yeah, and that's about what it's like. There's just a few of you, right? which is okay. People like change. But how many of you would say this morning, I don't like change, and when I get things just the way I want them, and when things are going like I like them, leave me alone, don't make any change, don't change my phone where I have to do this update and lose, <laughs> right? How many of you are like that, that you don't like change, right? And that's what the polls say. And whenever we acknowledge that times of transition bring change and produce change, we have to just say that that also produces anxiety, some, some anxiety. And the truth, that, the truth is, most of us don't like change. I think Mark Twain got it right when he said, the only person who really likes change is the baby with the wet diaper. <laughs> change can be particularly difficult we're not, when we're not the one initiating it. When someone else... It's causing it. Something else causes us to change. Haven't we experienced that in the last 16 months? But let me highlight today the second insight that's going to frame our conversation today, and it's this. Change means new challenges as well as new opportunities. Changes certainly can present great difficulties, but also in conjunction with that, they can produce new possibilities, new horizons. When one door is closed, most often another one is opened. And as I've read through the book of Ezra these last few weeks, and I encourage you as we're journeying through unfolding grace, as we're talking today about the exiles returning, read that entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which will be our pastor next week. It's extraordinary in its lessons. 
And when I think about the moment that we're living in individually and as a church, I'm reminded that like the exiles, this last 16 to 18 months has been filled with both transitions and change. And there's a variety of different responses that we've seen to the changes brought about by the pandemic. For the young and healthy, it's primarily been a nuisance. It's been an irritant. It's been something to endure, but not a great threat. It's caused great loss, even for the young. Not so much in health, but in loss of athletic seasons and proms and graduations and all kinds of things that you can't get back. But for those of us who are older, maybe who are less healthy, this time has been one of a great threat, great caution. For some, a time of great loss and grief as their family members have died. Some have found that this time of change has affected their economic reality in a negative way. Some have flourished in this time of change. So on a personal level, we just have to acknowledge that these different responses, these different impacts that the changes have made have been brought on us by the pandemic. But there's also been changes made not only at the personal level, but the macro level for our church as well. I've sketched out a timeline. It's in your notes about change points in the life of Hutto Bible Church over this last year or so. And as we go through it, I want you to be, I want to set the stage. I want you to be encouraged this morning by the way the Lord has shown grace and favor to Hutto Bible Church. Let's look at it. March 8th, 2020 was our last pre-pandemic Sunday. And there was 418 people in, these, in this room in the three services that day. March 15th, the week later, we were shut down. As the world, as our country was gripped in the throes of this pandemic with uncertainty about future, we went strictly to online. And I mentioned this in the first service, Peter Butler was an extraordinary servant during that time. Of thinking about one week, we go from, from meeting in person to transitioning only online. And, and Doug, our worship pastor and Peter did an extraordinary job of helping us make that transition. And you did as well. We lost the ability to meet together. And so it's two and a half months. It's May 31st. We begin to gather in person. It's a regathering. We, we start with registration. We all registered. We had to check in. We had assigned seating. We had social distancing. We all wore masks. And that first Sunday that we regathered, there were 76 of us. We stayed with three services until June 21st when attendance in, in a wise decision. And that was our last week of three services and we had 105 that day. And so June 28th, we moved to two services. But attendance began to rise gradually. And so August 27th, we moved back to three services. It was amazing with our pastor and our elder leadership, we were it was a constantly moving, fluid, changing environment. We had to make 
decisions really sometimes on a daily basis. October 4th, children's ministry and student ministry resumed and we had 227 that Sunday. And then January 3rd came, first Sunday of 2021, and we were able to take the Lord's Supper together for the very first time in almost a year. How glorious that was. March 28th of this year, we went mask optional for the 11 o'clock service. Can I get an amen about that, right? <laughs> no more check-ins. There was 318 of us that day. And then May 9th, second service mask optional, and, and our pastor will talk later about that. And No assigned seats, no check-in, no social distancing, and there was 332. But here's what I want us to celebrate. Throughout all of these change points, our staff, primarily led by Jamie and Janine, have worked an amazing thing with this registration and check-in and the seats. They would come here between services and their team and change the names on your seats. Do you guys remember that? And, and all the disinfecting that had to go on. And Jamie and Janine did an extraordinary job, and I think it's worthy of us to note that and remember them today. Thank you. And then I think about our greeter team and our ushers team who worked tirelessly. They had to come in here in this room every service between services and make sure things were in order and make sure people got to their right seats. And they've done an extraordinary job. Catherine Galloway led that initiative and they've did an, it's just amazing. Our ushers really, uh, not that they haven't been ushers, but boy, their, their role expanded during this time. And I think we ought to recognize them as well. And thank them as well. And financially, you have been so faithful. You've been faithful to God in this time of insanity, if you will. I mean, our budget giving has exceeded our budget expenditures throughout this entire transition. Can, can we not celebrate that and thank God for that? It's amazing what God has done. Your faithfulness. Now listen, church, I promise you this. By the authority of God's word, he will honor that in your life. So some of you are saying right now, okay, I get it, Pastor, but what does this have to do with Ezra? Well, just give me a few moments, okay? I'm going to connect the dots here. I'm going to, if you'll hang with me, I want, to, I want you to see there's parallels between what we've gone through, the change points that we've gone through as a church, and there's parallels between the exiles returning from Babylon. I think you'll see the analogs. I think you'll see the comparisons. So in your notes, here's where the book of Ezra begins. It's in your outline. So the people are in exile. It's 586 B.C. Jerusalem was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came in. And God's people were taken in exile. That's your first note. Fill in the blank at that section. And they were taken into captivity. The temple was looted. The temple was destroyed. Men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken hundreds of miles away from their home to Babylon. They were deported. 
And as I've read through the book of Ezra these last few weeks, here's what's occurred to me. That when the time came for those exiles to return, according to prophecy, according to Scripture, they didn't come back all at once. They came back in waves. That's your second fill in the blank. They came back in waves. Let me see if I can illustrate. Look at the one in 538 B.C. This is Cyrus, king of Persia. He issues a decree allowing return. He gives a decree. He says, you guys are going to be able to go back. We'll talk about that later. 537 B.C., a year later, the first wave returns to Jerusalem with their leader, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, Jeshua, the priest. There's two prophets that were writing at this time. And you may be unfamiliar with the book of Haggai and Zechariah, but I encourage you to read those. They, they were such encouragement to those people, to those exiles. There's so many principles we can learn from those books that apply today. 516, the temple was rebuilt, dedicated. And then 458, there was a second wave that returned with Ezra. Scripture says he was a priest and a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra was such an exemplary character. Let me just give you one verse about him. Scripture says that for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is such an important paradigm for any leader. The first thing you do is study. Then you do it. Then you're ready to teach it. In other words, you study to get accurate insight. Then you put into practice personally what you've learned. And then, and only then, are you able to pass along to somebody else. So whether you're a spiritual leader, whether you're a business leader, whether you're an educational leader, boy, the paradigm is beautiful. Learn it. Do it. Then teach it. Pastor Trey has taken a new role as our spiritual formation pastor. Even this hour, we have a new members class happening in the blue building. He's going to be covering in these four weeks what does it mean to be a member, why membership, covering our doctrinal essentials, covering our doctrinal distinctives. But I know the cry of his heart and one of his ministry purposes is to equip us, to equip you and release you for ministry in this church so that you can become fully formed in every way. I'm looking at a room full of men and women. I'm praying that you're desiring to be like Ezra. My prayers that you desire to learn from the scripture. I pray that you do it personally and live it in your life. And then our prayers that God will raise up you to teach others. This fall, God willing, our pastor and his wife will be teaching us about parenting. Does anybody need any help in parenting their kids? <laughs> How about grandkids? I mean, you know, I don't parent them, thank God, right? But 
I mean, it'll be a wonderful thing. We want and desire for every area of your life for you to understand what the Word of God teaches. For you to be equipped. I don't know about you, but this is a tough life. It's a tough world, is it not? And then the last thing that happened, the change point in this exile's returning was 445 B.C. The third wave returned with Nehemiah. And they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. So here's the big truth about this section of my time with you this morning that I want you to take away. And this is it. Whatever wave you're in, it's in your notes. Whatever wave you're in, if you belong to the Lord, it's important for you to return to church and help us rebuild for the glory of God. Do you see the parallels? Do you see where Ezra and the exiles were and where we are today? Now, maybe you came back to church right when we began to meet in person. Or maybe you came back in the middle. You were part of the second wave. Or maybe you've just come back today. I spoke to a man at the first service. This was his first day back. Or maybe the time is yet ahead. Maybe you're watching online. And the Holy Spirit even now is, is, is saying to you, you need to return and rebuild. But whatever the season is, now's the time for us to return. Now's the time for us to rebuild. Now, I want to say to you this morning, if you're at risk health-wise, if it's not wise for you to be in this room, we fully understand. We want to serve you. We will serve you. If you'll let us know, please stay home. But listen, beloved, if you can go on vacation, if you can go to your kids' school programs, if you can go out to a restaurant with your friends, for goodness sakes, if you can go to Costco for an hour, then it's time for you to come back to church. And not only are we going to have to return, we're going to have to rebuild some things as well. It's not like, it's not going to be like it was. Do you know what the experts are saying? They're saying that 20 to 30% of the people that were here before COVID won't come back. So here's what we're asking you. You need, please join our pastor, myself, your leadership team, your elders and staff, and praying that the experts are wrong. And praying for our church as we rebuild all the ministry expressions of Hutto Bible. And so as we return and rebuild over the next season, and I, I firmly believe, and this may be the musings of an old man because I am an old man, but I believe in the depths of my soul, that God is going to send people to this church. They're going to come in from desert waste places. They're going to come in to be able to hear truth. This is a gospel preaching church. It's the cry of the soul of our pastor and our leadership. In the season and times that are coming ahead, people are going to want to know truth. Not the truth that, well, my truth is mine and yours is yours. No, I'm talking about the truth of the gospel.
People will come. And we need to be prepared. So let's take our cue from the exiles. This is a passage today. It'll be on your screens. And if you're following along in your Bible, it's found in Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And, and it says, the scripture says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. I don't want you to miss here. They didn't finish the building. They just laid the foundation. But look at their response. And I believe in some ways for us in certain parts of our rebuilding, all we're at right now is the foundation stage. But look at their response in the foundation stage. The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets. The Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And look at this. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. Church, is he not good? He's good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. I'm too Baptist in my heritage to shout today, but I should. <laughs> I should shout today. Thankfulness to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as we look at the parallels between Ezra and the return of the exiles and where we are today, there's three things that we can learn from this book that are so important. Three things we should do. So the first one that's in your notes. In this time of transition and change, we should pray that God would raise up governmental leaders who will look with favor on God's people. That's the way the book of Ezra begins. A leader. As far as we know, an unbeliever. He's not a believer in the one true God. This is a vicious, pagan man. The leader of the most powerful nation in the world. The nation of Persia. But this leader showed favor. He looked with favor on God's people. Let me show you. This is found in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. It'll be on your screen. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And I, this is the guy I'm talking about. And I want to remind you and us today that Isaiah, the prophet, had written 150 years before this that God, he called him by name, that God would raise up Cyrus. Is God not sovereign? <laughs> In the first year of this king, that the word of the Lord might be, uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's the most powerful man in the world. But he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. By the way, not only did he send them back, he financed it totally. Do you see that? The reason the people got to return 
from exile back to the homeland and to a place of worship in the holy city of Jerusalem at the temple was because a pagan leader named Cyrus looked with favor on God's people. And God was the one who stirred his heart to do so. I don't know what the future holds. But I know given the demographics and direction of our country that it is unlikely that a person who believes the Bible, embraces its values, understands and shares the gospel and confesses Jesus as Lord of all, it's unlikely that that person will be elected in this country anytime soon. But we can pray. We can pray as the, as the Apostle Paul taught Timothy. Watch these words. Look what he says to him, his beloved son in the faith. He said, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now watch this, the next verse. And for kings and all who are in high positions. When Paul's writing these words, no less a vicious character by the name of Nero is the emperor of Rome. Maybe some of you have studied about his life. Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to pray for that guy. Why? Well, look at the next thing. He says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I don't want you to miss this next part, church. Because Paul's telling Timothy, if we do this, this is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Listen, church, we are all citizens of one of the greatest experiment, in my opinion, the greatest country in the history of mankind. And we have rights as citizens. We have glorious rights, do we not? But there's an imperative here that transcends our rights as a citizen of the United States. And that that's the, an imperative for us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to pray. That's the most powerful thing we can do. I'm not just, we should vote. We should let our, vote our consciences, let our views be known. That's part of the beauty of America. But the most important thing you can do is pray. Pray for our president. Pray for our vice president. Pray for our congressional leaders. Pray for our mayor. Pray for our governor. Pray for all of those who are in leadership in our cities. And I want to ask you rhetorically, when's the last time you prayed for our president? When's the last time you prayed for our vice president? The commandment of the Lord is to pray for them. Pray that God would raise up leaders. Believers or not, who would look with favor on God's people. Now, I'm not talking about a state religion. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about favoring one group over another. I'm just talking about leaders who will honor and respect our founding principles. That all people are created equal. All people ought to get to pursue life, liberty, happiness. Everyone ought to have freedom of religion. 
freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. That's the kind of leaders we need to pray for. Second thing we can do is we should prepare to face intense opposition. Prepare for it. Now, this has been true of every generation of Christ followers. That's why Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy again in 2 Timothy 3, would say, and I have to just tell you right now, this verse bothers me. Do you guys ever read a verse and it just bothers you, right? I mean, look, look what he says to Timothy. He says, indeed, all, and if you're writing, if you have a paper Bible, you can circle the word all. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what he's saying to us, church, is that if you purpose in your life to order it according to his purposes, to follow him fully, to discover what God has for you in the fullest while you're here on earth, you will be persecuted. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my walk with Christ, I would say, I didn't sign up for that. Am I the only one? Or was, We're in church today. Right? Listen, church family, I don't want to overstate this. There's no benefit in me overstating this, this principle. If you look at any respectable list of countries where it's difficult to be a follower of Christ, the United States is not near the top of that list. We have lots of liberty here. You want to look at other places in the world like North Korea, Pakistan, India, China, Iran. There's real, violent, coercive persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And most of us have not yet experienced that. So I don't want to overstate it. But I also don't want to understate it as well. I don't want to understate the coercive Nature, the pressure that's being socially brought to bear on us economically, legally, that's even now on Christ followers in this country being brought to bear. One quick example. In December of 2020, a case out of Georgia got to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this case was one of a young African-American man who came to faith in Christ he wanted to share his faith on his campus of his college in Gwinnett County, Georgia. The school authorities told him that was beyond the pale. He could not do that on campus. He could not share Christ, the gospel, on campus. The authorities were challenged. And so here was their response. They said, well, we'll allow it but only in a certain area on campus and only in a certain time of day. You know how big the area was? 
you could take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and put it, they told him he had that area on a football field and he had to stand in that area. And they said, you have to stay there if you want to talk about Jesus. This is Georgia. The Supreme Court finally hears the case on March 8th, 2021, and they ruled by an eight to one decision in favor of the young man. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote, it's undisputed that the young man experienced a completed violation of his constitutional rights when the college enforced their speech policies against him. Aren't we thankful for the current leadership of the Supreme Court of the United States? You see, when the exiles returned as well, and when they began to rebuild, they experienced vocal, coercive, forceful, politically powerful opposition as well. We should expect no less. And in the days and weeks ahead, it's a season to prepare for intense opposition. So how, how do we do that? Well, a couple of things, brief things I want to suggest. Paul, when writing that circular letter we call Ephesians, he wrote about the armor that we have. And I think about him being in the company of Roman soldiers all the time. In Ephesians 6, he talks about the helmet of salvation that we have, the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness not of our own, but that's been imputed to us by Christ, the belt of truth, his word is truth, gospel shoes, a shield of faith. The offensive weapon was the word of God. All forward facing. We need to turn and face our opposition with the armor of God, the gospel of Jesus and the love of Christ. And the second thing I would encourage you to do today is to develop a personal doctrine of suffering. Understanding that if you want a fellowship with Christ in his glory, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, you will suffer for his sake. We should participate in his sufferings as well. And the last thing we can do is we should reorder our lives in obedience to the word of God. When you look at Ezra, when you read this book from the first chapter to the 10th chapter, these exiles, these people of Israel, they put their lives in order again in accordance with the word of God. And as a result, they experience favor and blessing and joy in the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, are there areas in your life that you need to reorder? in obedience with God's word. I encourage you today and exhort you and, and promise you that by God's word, if you will do so, you will experience that joy, that peace. And you may be in here today and your life is not, you're not a follower of Christ. So I want to encourage you today that by the precious blood of Christ that he shed on the cross to pay in full the debt of sin that you have, today you can be made whole. Today you can be made new. Today your life can become 
in order. For those of us that follow him and love him, we should follow the example of Ezra. I'm encouraging you to, today to follow that example. Ezra fueled his character by saturating his life with God's word, by knowing it, by learning it. He heard it. He thought about it. He applied it. He obeyed it. He spoke it. And then he taught it. He built the truth of God's word into his life. If you're in Christ this morning, the key to lasting success is that you listen daily for his guidance. You follow the direction of his word. And, and brothers and sisters, can you just let this be your guidepost? Do you know that God has kept this through the ages, through the sacrifice of so many men and women? Some of them have lost their lives so we could still have this. There's not a situation that you will ever face in your life that you will not find the answer. Because God has given it to us. This is the primary way. I'm not saying he doesn't speak other ways. But for my personal life, this is the primary way that he's spoken to me. Listen. Study. Look for direction. And then when he reveals it, you bend your life by the power of the Holy Spirit into obedience to what you've learned. We need you. You're here today. Thanks for being here. We welcome you. Help us rebuild. For those of you that are watching that maybe haven't returned yet, please come back. Return and help us rebuild. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your timeless, unchanging word. The truth that's there. Lord, there's not a season or time of transition that we've experienced that you've not been sovereign, that you've not been directing and guiding. My prayer for every man and woman in this room today is that in this sovereign time in their lives, that you would teach them and keep them, that you would guide and direct them, that they could put their lives in order with your word, that we could follow the example of Ezra who you prepared so he would be an instrument of your peace. I pray your plans and purposes over them today be done on earth as they are in heaven in the mighty name and authority of the name of Jesus. Amen.